scripture reading, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. The second scripture reading for this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And we begin our reading at verse 13 and as far as verse 33. We find here our Lord Jesus being led out to be crucified. And something quite startling happens. Here is this man who is condemned to death, beaten perhaps beyond recognition. And as there are those who are weeping for him, he stops them and warns them. He rejects their tears and warns them about what is coming to them even as he himself is about to die a most torturous death. We hope to see the glory of the work of our Lord Jesus, his love for sinners, and the message that not only the people there heard, but that we, by the grace of God, would hear as well this morning. Well, please turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23, reading together verses 13 through 33. Here again the word of the Lord our God. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, and found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod. For I sent you to him, and lo, or behold, Nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one of them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. And they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant or immediately with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people, and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. 
For if they do these things in a green tree or in the midst of prosperity and flourishing, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And thus far our reading of God's word and may the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This version of Psalm 78 is entitled Lessons from the Past and how we indeed ought to walk in the ways of the Lord our God and put our trust in him. But all too often we find, like verse 4, not only in the history of God's revelation and his dealings with his people, but certainly in our own times and sadly in our own hearts as the flesh battles against the spirit. The story be told to warn and restrain of hearts that were hard, rebellious and vain. Of soldiers who faltered when battle was near, who kept not God's covenant nor walked in his fear. To warn and restrain. That's what our Lord Jesus does in this portion of God's word in Luke chapter 23 and what an amazing thing it is he rejects the tears of those who are mourning for him I don't know about you but that's a strange thing to me all too often when we're suffering when we're having a hard time when something bad is happening to us we want other people to recognize it Boys and girls, when you're hurt, when you're in pain, when you're in trouble, when someone doesn't understand you, when someone is being mean to you, don't you want somebody to do something about it? Don't you want someone to recognize how hard it is? Sometimes we think there's comfort, even in the recognition something is hard, even if somebody can't do anything about it. Well, our Lord Jesus is probably in the hardest situation anyone has ever been in. He is bearing the wrath of God on his way to suffer it fully for the sake of sinners like us. And when he is in such a state, he is moved by pity for what others will be suffering, even though he is in the midst of suffering so much. In Luke 23, verses 27 through 31, we find the Lord Jesus rejecting the tears of those who are mourning for him. And this is certainly contrary to expectation, we might say, but also with the most seriousness or the most serious of warnings. Well, firstly, contrary to expectation. I talked to you personally how I would find that strange. Maybe you would find that strange because why would you reject someone's tears? Why would you say, don't feel sorry for me when you're going through the greatest and most difficult of times? Well, our Lord Jesus rejects their tears. Just so simply, so clearly, Verse 27, And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. They are crying for him. 
weeping for him, calling out for him, and and expressing the, the sadness of what is going on in the midst of his coming death. Now, this is something cultural. This is something expected culturally. These are professional mourners. We don't have this in our culture today. But this was what people did. Someone was going to die and there would be great suffering. And in the midst of the sadness, which it is, there would be crying and wailing to demonstrate how horrible a thing this was. Sometimes in our culture, we look at that and we call it, well, that's hypocritical. That's insincere. That's a sham. It wasn't for them. They didn't know him personally. They weren't gripped by a true faith or some kind of spirit-worked reality of what was happening. In their culture, it was just a corporate expression of sadness and grief and guilt. It's something we don't really have. But that's why it's doubly amazing that the Lord Jesus doesn't accept their tears. You think if anybody would accept the tears and the custom and the practice of his people, it would be the Lord Jesus. He understands what they're doing. He understands what they're going through. Plus further, he understands himself what he's been going through and what he will go through. The man has been all night put on trial, rejected, mocked, and beaten perhaps beyond recognition. Maybe he's so physically weak he can't carry his own cross. After all, they have to call out a man from the crowd to carry it for him. In verse 26, And they led him away and laid hold upon one Simon a Cyrenian coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Here is this man bruised and bleeding, swelling, hobbling perhaps, with a man trailing behind him, carrying his cross, and there are people weeping for him in light of what he has gone through and in light of what he is about to suffer. I would have welcomed those tears. Wouldn't you? Some of us would think just naturally in the situation we're in, yeah, it's fitting I have people mourn for me. I'm going through a lot. This is hard. And I want people to recognize that. Wouldn't you, if you were going to do some great and amazing momentous thing like the atonement for sin and the self-denial you are showing, don't you think you would even culturally and outwardly be fitting you receive some recognition? Of course, it's right you do this for me. I am the Christ who has come to fulfill all things and to make the atonement for sin so you and sinners like you can be received to my Father. It's only fitting you wail for me and mourn for me because of what I am doing for you. But further, maybe for us, certainly not like our Lord, but for us there's a sense of self-pity. Sometimes it feels like it's stained in everything we do. We feel sorry for ourselves. This is so hard. Woe is me. This is is so difficult. This is unreasonable. Oh. And one 
of the marvelous things we see about the Lord Jesus. When it comes to the varied emotional life he displayed in his human nature, is you never see any self-pity. There is never any self-pity in the Lord Jesus. There is recognition of hardship. Like when he is before his father and he weeps and he sweats tears of blood and sweats blood, I should say, and he, he prays three times, let this cup pass from me. There is recognition of hardship, but there is no self-pity. Here, it's amazing what he is doing. It's entirely contrary to expectation culturally. And what does he do? Personally, it's entirely contrary to his own situation. And what does he do? He speaks forth the truth to them and does something amazingly beyond expectation. You ever want to wonder or see where the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ towards sinners is? You want to see the heart of our Lord Jesus towards those who are lost? It's right here. There's many other places, but there's a a glorious picture of it for us here. There is in this Contrary expectation, a marvelous revelation of his character. They are weeping for him. They are lamenting him. And we're told in verse 28, But Jesus turning unto them said, And already there, there's an amazing thing. You're trudging along in tremendous pain, bleeding, beaten, about to die, instead of mentally, emotionally, and physically gearing up for what he is about to face. Because the wrath of God in all its fullness has those full effects on him as the rest of the narrative of the crucifixion highlights. Rather than focusing on what he's going to do, getting himself together, the way an athlete would prepare, the way a teacher would prepare, the way a counselor would prepare, the way a student would prepare. You get ready for the task. He's not focused on himself. He focuses on them. He focuses on them. And what an amazing selfless thing that is. He could turn around and say, I am the son of God in the flesh about to be the living sacrifice for you. But he's not focused on himself at all. He's focused on them. I don't know about you, but I'd be focused on myself. I'm prone to sinful self-pity. I'd be feeling really sorry for me about what was happening to me. I would be so gripped, even just objectively, realizing the circumstances that I'd be focusing on what I need to do. But what does the Lord Jesus do? As part of his work to his Father, according to what he is called to do, what do we see him to be like? He turns unto them, the professional mourners, He stops making his way to the cross, turns. And though his face may be beaten beyond recognition, he can barely open his eyes. He looks at them. 
And what does he say? Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. They're doing their job. They're the cultural mourners. They're, they're, they're showing the lament and the grief for what a man like him would be going through in this situation. And he turns and looks at them and says, don't cry for me. Don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. He's about to face the wrath of God poured out upon him unmixed. And he says, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. Cry for yourselves. What an amazing thing. You ever wonder if the Lord Jesus truly was touched with the spirit of our infirmities? You ever wonder if the Lord Jesus can truly understand what people go through? The answer is absolutely. Because he's not just gripped. He's not gripped, I should say, by the fact they're mourning for him. He, he's not gripped by, aren't they doing such a good job portraying the tragedy from their perspective of what he is in the midst of and what he will do. He's gripped by what's going to happen to them. And the irony, perhaps, you would say, of the situation. Certainly the tragedy. They're mourning for him. And he knows what's coming if they don't believe in him. They're mourning for him, feeling sorry, as it were, for him, lamenting the horror he's about to face, and he is more concerned about them and the horror they will face. It's as if he turns to them and says, Listen, you think what I am going through is terrible? What's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to you? And thus in the midst of this contrary expectation of his rejection of their tears comes a warning from a heart from a heart that is so selfless when anyone else would be in his position would be so focused on what he's dealing with he looks at them and as we'll see with the Lord's help not just them but us too us too, if we find ourselves in the same place they are, not truly recognizing the significance of who he is and what he's doing. Now, as he turns to them to speak, he gives them a warning. He says, weep for yourselves and for your children. Don't weep for me. I don't need your tears. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And then comes this warning, and this warning is one that is couched in language going back to passages like Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, and language that will be fulfilled with the coming of the Romans and the destruction of Jerusalem. But further, it will be ultimately fulfilled like we'll see in the book of Revelation. 
as some different commentators would put it, this is the language of destruction of kingdoms and earthly upset, as the rule and justice of God will be fully established at that great day of days. He says here, For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Those are words of warning, words of judgment. Not unlike words he had already spoken in Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that gave suck. In those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's the judgment God sends on the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And it's a judgment still seen today. And this is still the time of the Gentiles. Romans 9, 10, and 11 explain this beautifully. As now is the time for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in before the Lord returns. And some of you, if you may have studied that time when Rome came in and destroyed their temple and slaughtered the people, what a horrible time it was. Jesus is warning them of that, but more, but more. We could take the time to see in other passages in the Old Testament, this is prophecy, not only of AD 70, but something that has done and and been accomplished by foreign nations throughout the scriptures, finding its culmination in God's judgment. Revelation chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. Revelation chapter 6, verses 14 through 17 expresses it this way. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it was rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman hid themselves in the dens of the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. From the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who shall be able to stand? That adds another dimension to what our Lord Jesus is doing in this rejection of tears as he looks at these people. He is warning them and saying, Don't feel sorry for me. I am going to bear the wrath of God, but what about you? What will you do without me when the wrath of God comes? 
and all the historical judgment that were echoed through the Old Testament, exemplified in A.D. 70 in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, only point to the full wrath of God, even the Lord Jesus himself, for their rejection of him. And for the sake of that warning, he rejects their tears to warn them what is coming for them. And as I mentioned to you, that includes us. AD 70 may have happened a long time ago, and those Old Testament judgments are borne witness. But there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, in the book of Acts, chapter 17, this is further explained in other words after Paul finishes disputing with the people on Mars Hill. As he finishes disputing with the people on Mars Hill, he says in verse 30 of Acts 17, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, the fact that Gentiles didn't follow the Lord, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Our Lord Jesus, in the midst of his sufferings, looks at them with no sense of pity for himself, and only with a concern for them says, cry for yourselves because of what's coming. You need me. You need what I am going to do. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. That's why I've come to deliver you from what is coming. And if you reject me, if we use the language of revelation, the fulfillment of all the other pictures and types of judgments, it is I am the one who is coming for you. They're missing the whole point of who the Lord Jesus is and why he's there as they are weeping for him according to their cultural program, completely missing his work as the Christ. And because of that, they will face judgment and they will be crying out just like the people did in the Old Testament, just like the people did in AD 70, and just like we all will if we do not know this blessed Christ, be crying out for the mountains to fall on us to be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. Have you ever given thought to that? This is a beautiful passage about the character of our Lord, how he understands himself, how he understands his work, how he has such a blessed disposition and is sensitive to the horror that is going to come to sinners, even as it's a horror he himself is about to face. But what about you? What about me? Should lead us to ask serious questions. Is this how we think of Christ? Not only in the midst of his mercy, not only in the midst of his selflessness, not only in the midst of his concern for sinners, but in the fact that though he be the one to suffer, he will be the one to come to judge. 
And we can add to that. Have you heeded this warning? Have you heeded this warning? Maybe you've been gripped by the history of the man Jesus. Maybe you've been moved by selfless sacrifice. Maybe you've been touched by what a moral teacher he is and what a good man. Those things are all true. But none of those things are ultimately of salvation. Have you been made aware of the situation you're in? And the judgment you will face? Do you own the fact that apart from him, and have you begun to realize that you will cry out for the mountains to fall on you? That took new meaning to this Michigan boy. For those of you who haven't been to Michigan, Michigan is pretty flat. Here in New Jersey, you've got the rolling hills and the twisty turns. It's a lot more like the Ozarks. But in Michigan, it's just flat. First time I went to Chilliwack, British Columbia, where I pastored, and it was what the people there would call a foothill. I was borrowing a truck from one of the members of the congregation. I was going on a visit And the house was in the shadow of one of these hills. And I got out of this truck and looked up. And and all of a sudden, I just felt so small. Then you look out beyond, and you see the big ones with the white caps on top. And you just thought, oh, that's what they're going to choose rather than face the wrath of the Lamb just fall on you, crush you. Have you ever come to understand that's what you deserve? And if you have, then there's a beautiful thing here. And this goes back to what I mentioned earlier. Do you understand who the Lord Jesus is aright? Because if you see the situation you're in, if you see the fact that you are in danger, if you say, yes and amen, I need this warning. Yes and amen, I should be crying for myself because I'm a sinner and I'm in big trouble. I'm going to face the wrath of God if, 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 if I die now. What a beautiful picture that even the one about to face it for a sinner like you is the one concerned about those who are lost. If you find yourself in that state, if you're needing salvation, it's right there. It's in him. That's what he's about to go do. That's what he's about to go do on the cross. He himself will even finish the job, as he says, when he says it is finished. If you find yourself as a sinner in need of deliverance, he's there. And he has suffered what you deserve to suffer. And if he is the one calling you to trust in him, not to weep for him, but weep for yourself, find your deliverance in him. That's why he is going to the cross. That's why it's such a blessed subversion of expectation and a great warning that those who are gripped by that warning see the one who is warning them doing the very thing they need. 
And that's why for a sinner to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there can be peace, there can be rest, because they see he suffered what they deserve to suffer. And that he has done what they have failed to do. In short, he suffered the hell I deserve, and he kept the law for me, and only he could do it. And in that way, you don't have to fear the judgment. Because the judgment that would have come upon you has come upon him. But if you reject him, if you don't recognize the state you're in and heed this warning, then you will face the wrath of the Lamb. And isn't it beautiful, that language, the wrath of the Lamb? Maybe it's terrifying, but beautiful. It is the wrath of the one who has given himself an offering for sin. That's what the cross was about. And that's exactly what those mourners and what we all need. An unexpected thing, a rejection of tears, accompanied by by such a marvelous warning, all revealing to us the glorious mercy and work of our Savior. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Amen. Our Lord and our God, our great Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the work of the Lord Jesus and the richness of what He has done. And now, Lord, we pray that Thou would cause us to turn to Thee afresh for our blessed salvation. And for those, Lord, who may not have turned to Thee, by the power of Thy Spirit, let them see the truth of not only their own sin, but the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done. Lord Jesus, thou art worthy of all praise and honor and glory for what thou hast done. And what an amazing thing that thou, in the midst of all thy service to thy Father, that we see the richness and the depth and the beauty of thy care and concern for lost sinners. We pray for thy further help, Lord, on the Sabbath day. Bless times of fellowship. We pray for rest, especially rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And bless us as we hope to worship again a second time later on this afternoon. Heavenly Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.